Good morning, everyone. My name is Martin Shields. I'm the Chief Wealth Advisor at Boucher Financial Group, and I'm going to be your host today for Let's Talk Money. It's great to be here with you on this winter morning, right? I'm looking out the window here. We've got snow in the air. Uh, I think we may have a nor'eastern storm coming this week. And, you know, we're in March, so we start thinking that perhaps we're in spring, but even from a calendar perspective, we have to the 21st. And, you know, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm embracing winter, maybe get some skiing in here in the next week or two, maybe some spring skiing. But when March 21st comes, I'm ready for, I'm ready for warm weather. So hopefully when that happens, if we hit calendar spring on the 21st, we'll move right over to warm weather. But it's great to be here with you today to answer any questions you may have regarding your financial planning or investment management concerns. And my colleague, Steve Boucher, is actually, I think, up in Boston going to a Bruins game with his grandchildren. So hopefully uh, the Bruins do well and they have fun uh, being up there. But it's great to be here again with you to answer any questions you may have. And you can reach me at 800-TALK-WGI. That's 800-825-5949. Again, 800-825-5949. We have an awful lot to discuss today. And we are fortunate to have one of my esteemed colleagues, Vincenzo Testa, on the show with me today. Vinny is a CPA and a CFP and knowledgeable in a lot of areas, uh, in particular in the tax side. Vinny helps lead up our tax program. Uh, and so really great to have him here as we are in the, in the middle of tax season. So if you have any tax questions, uh, definitely give us a call. Uh, and Vinny is also very knowledgeable on uh, small business owners and them exiting uh, their business, as well as working with executives on stock options. And he and my colleague, our colleague, uh, Nicole, uh, had a webinar on that. Uh, Vinny, it's great to have you on. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Marty. And yeah, to any listener that has any question that's tax-related, um, or potentially you receive equity compensation or stock compensation from your employer and, and you're unsure of any, you know, the way to exit it properly from a tax perspective and a, a risk uh, and diversification perspective, you know, feel free to call and ask those questions. Great. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this, uh, you know, Vinny and Nicole have joined us from uh, now coming on almost more than two years now. And, you know, from our perspective, we're our client's personal CFO. So if there's something that's finance related, we want to be having that discussion with our clients. And the tax piece is just such an important part of that engagement. And, you know, Ryan is a CPA and, and our colleague now, John Malay, is a CPA. Um, we have a new colleague, Scott, who's enrolled agent who joined us. Uh, you know, we've had some pretty solid tax uh, background before, but now with the team that we have, uh, it really has just added so much value to our engagement with clients. And let's face it, uh, when it comes to taxes, it's complex. And we see quite often, um, you know, situations where our clients working with uh, a tax preparer maybe doesn't know all the nuances of it. I know in particular, uh, not to send anybody too hard, but H&R Block, we've had a number of issues with uh, some uh, tax filings that were filed in the past. And so to have that team that we have uh, is really valuable. So again, if you have any questions, whether it be financial planning related or maybe related to this market, we had some volatility here this week that we'll discuss. Um, call, call us and we can give you some guidance. You can re reach us at 800-825-5949. Once again, that's 
I also want to give a shout out to my wife of 20 years. We're going to be getting our 20th anniversary this July. And my son Hayden, who are en route uh, heading over to a soccer tournament over in Exeter, New Hampshire. And it literally will be outdoors, folks. Uh, so it's going to be pretty chilly. So I know they're driving. So I, be safe uh, out there driving and enjoy the show. Uh, but let's go ahead and talk a little bit about the, the markets, right? So, you know, this year, uh, it is still positive in the markets. Uh, the S&P is up just about a half a percentage point, And the NASDAQ 100 is up almost more than 8%. Uh, so we're still positive with the markets. But this week was a little bit more challenging. So we had a couple of different big news items that came out that, that moved the markets. Uh, one of which was Jay Powell uh, was testifying in front of Congress. And, you know, he's, I, I would say, relatively speaking, Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve uh, have done a pretty good job of trying to communicate what their perspective is. But like in anything in life, you can take what you hear in different ways, right? And I think when the market hears anything that indicates that Jay Powell may be getting soft on inflation or feel as though we've kind of reached the end of them raising interest rates right away uh it turns around and, and rallies and i think there's been a little bit of that this year yeah, i think you know when the market hit this s p uh, hit 4200 so early in the year it was a little bit of a head scratching just to the extent that there's still a lot of things that are uncertain in this economy and uh and with the markets so you know when jay powell came out this week and in his testimony and with questions with uh, Congressman, they basically pretty clearly said that rates will go uh, higher, faster, and stay up there longer. That was really the theme of what he said. And, you know, to me, this has been pretty clear all along. I mean, I, I just don't feel that the Federal Reserve, and in particular Jay Powell, uh, is of the mindset that they're going to be reducing rates, especially when inflation, yes, it's come down from the high that it was at 9%. But it's still pretty sticky, right? It's not, it's down, it's pretty kind of stuck in a 6% range. And in particular, I would say there's two main areas where the, the challenge becomes just that much tougher for inflation. Uh, one is with uh, wages. So we did have some good news with wage growth in the uh, labor numbers that came out this Friday for the month of February. And that, that was, the, it's still up. We were still having wages increase, but by a lesser amount than the month prior, which is good to hear, uh, certainly from an inflation perspective. Uh, but the it's still, the, you know, you, you see it out there. The labor markets are very, very tight. We added another 311,000 jobs, which is a really big number. And, you know, February was a blockbuster month with adding new jobs. And, you know, you do see the headlines where some of the big tech companies are laying off. And I think in the tech space where they just they went on a crazy hiring spree back in you know, 2020, I think that they basically overhired. Right. So you're, you're seeing those numbers come down. But I would suggest that if you talk to most small business owners or really most other industries beyond, let's say, tech or maybe even housing, that, you know, it is very difficult to find uh, good people, right? And and it's it's just very tight. Vinny, what do you hear? I mean, when we work with a lot of small business owners, what do you hear in those conversations when you're talking to them about, uh, you know, finding people and keeping people? Oh, yeah. I mean, 
you know, especially for restaurant owners, that you know, that's that's the space where the well, the area, you know, uh, where you really hear them having trouble finding, keeping people. And I'm sure you know everyone has heard that from restaurant owners <laughs> as of recently. So that's that's definitely the uh, you know you know what I've been hearing from that space. Yeah, and then the other space is healthcare. Uh, you know, you, whether it's assisted care or any really any area within the healthcare space. Uh, there is really just a, a lack of qualified uh, candidates for positions, and certainly healthcare. As we have the baby boomers retire, you know we have more and more people who need more extensive healthcare, and I think there's been a pretty decent amount of burnout uh, after COVID, and and really the, just the amount of hours and and the requirements they've had on healthcare workers over the last two or three years. So, you know, again, you have the labor markets being very tight. That will continue to keep inflation higher. The other thing is, you know, as we've talked about this, as the housing market uh, is kind of cooled down a little bit, uh, you know, it hasn't dropped off any cliff though, even though interest rates on a 30 year have gone from under 3% uh, up to almost 7%, just shy of seven. They did hit seven at one point, but they're just shy of, of seven. You know, that's a, that's a dramatic increase. And you think about how that impacts people's ability to afford you know, houses at particular prices, you would think that, frankly, that the prices would have come down more. But really what you have in this case is a supply issue, right? There's a lot of people that might otherwise have put their house up for sale, but, you know, with prices um, dropping, but also if you sell a house, chances are you've got to buy a house, right? And so those people who currently have a house, when they say, hey, if I get out of my house and let's say I sell it for $400,000 and my current mortgage is you know, 3% for 30 years, and I buy another house that maybe it's the same price, maybe it's a little bit more, but now that interest rate's almost 7%, that's not really appealing to me. And uh, Vinny, I know, talk to our listeners about approach that you took with your house, which I think is a really creative one that in in your circumstances, you know, you knew you wanted to buy the house. How did you handle that from a mortgage perspective? Yeah, so, you know, this is a really great strategy and probably hasn't been prevalent in a long time since interest rates were as high as they are now, you know, back years ago. Um, so, you know, I bought my house in September and interest rates are around uh, 6% for a 30-year fixed mortgage. So I had looked into, you know, other options, um, you know, from a mortgage perspective, and I determined that the best option for me was getting a uh, 10-year adjustable rate mortgage, right? So what does that mean? It's a 30-year loan, but for the first 10 years, the interest rate is reduced from what a you know, normal fixed rate 30-year mortgage would be, and it's fixed for 10 years. So you're getting a mm-hmm. discount on the interest rate for the first 10 years, but it's fixed. And then after that, the interest rate starts to adjust to whatever the market uh, interest rate is. So you know, if you think about it, uh, after you know, within 10 years, you know, interest rates are probably going to be lower than they are now. Mm-hmm. Right. So you have that discounted uh, interest rate. So my thought process was to, you know, maybe five, six, seven, eight years down the road when I feel the time is right and interest rates are maybe down to what they were two years ago. I refinance the loan and just jump back into a fixed rate and lock in that lower interest rate. So that I feel like that, you know, that was a really great strategy and could help a lot of people. But, you know, you know, sometimes mortgage brokers won't push something like that on you. They They may you know, they're in the business of sales, so they may want to push mortgages on, you know, the term on you that benefits them uh, more so. So just 
you know, if you have any questions about that, feel free to call in or call call the office, um, and we can give you some guidance on that. That's great. That's great. So again, you have a housing market that is certainly uh, down as far as number of sales, but still prices have remained elevated. So what that does is it pushes a lot of people that might otherwise be buying, it pushes them into the rental market. And if, you, if you're in the rental market, you know that rents have been very elevated. And you know some of these big cities, they are continuing to go up. And rents and labor costs are a big component of the CPE, I'm sorry, the CPI and the PC, the other two inflation uh, indices. Uh, the PC is really what the uh, Fed looks at to understand where inflation stands. And so, yes, gasoline prices have come down, but two big components of inflation remain quite elevated. And frankly, I don't see any signs of, of weakness in that. So that has really, from the Fed's perspective, cemented in their mind that they are not going to be either pausing anytime soon or certainly pivoting to lowering rates when this is you know kind of what the market has been thinking maybe it was going to happen and so when the federal reserve was in front of congress saying that that's when the the market took a little bit of a a drop in the middle of the week and then we had yesterday where we had a we're kind of in this crazy world where good news in the economic perspective is perhaps bad news uh, for the fed and that flows into the market where you had a, a stronger than expected jobs report uh, and i did mention that wage growth did moderate a little bit but it's still uh, pretty high so you know that would that also started yesterday off uh, on a little bit of a sour note but then in the middle of the day we found out that a bank out in california it's the 16th largest bank in the country uh it's, it goes by the acronym svb silicon valley bank Nobody, I have never heard of it. Most people have never heard of it, but it's, you know, obviously 16th largest bank in the U.S., pretty large bank, and it was uh, taken over by the FTC yesterday. So basically it was a bank failure, and it was the largest bank failure going back to all the way to 08. Uh, we've, you know, you do have bank failures that occur. Uh, we had one in 2020, and they, they, they do occur, but usually nothing to, to be on the headlines. Uh, but, you know, there's a number of factors with this. It's important to understand, you know, what that means. But, you know, to have a bank failure right away, the market and just in general from a psyche perspective goes back to, you know, 08, 09. Now, much different environment there in that time period than now for a number of different reasons. I mean, really, 08, 09, of course, was just the, the main issue was, uh, you know, the real estate market, which was way overinflated and banks had all that, those crappy uh, mortgage-backed securities on their balance sheet. So in many ways, a much different situation, but in some ways uh, it could still be problematic, right? And, you know, this is one of the things that we've talked about, which is when the Federal Reserve raises interest rates, quite often like this, you don't know how it's going to happen, but they break things, right? That's a term that's used because what happens is, one thing leads to another and things that you may not expect to have happen happen and in the case with uh silicon valley bank they had a few issues one is many of the uh companies and individuals that put money into the bank so depositors were in the tech sector and many of them were startup tech companies well guess what tech is having a bit of an issue in especially with, with startups so they were pulling their cash out of the bank to fund their businesses, right? So you had depositors that needed money, so they're pulling it from the bank. 
the other thing is many of the uh, companies and people they lent money to were, guess what, in the tech sector. And so some of those companies that they were lending to were having some issues with their businesses and there were some failures with that. So that was a negative. So you have money leaving the bank. You have some of the uh, loans being coming challenged and, and dropping in value. And with banks, this is, you know, they're looking at what's the value of the loans and potential losses and what are the assets on their balance sheet. Well, when you have assets declining and loans starting to fail, nothing major, but starting to fail, and you have an overall balance sheet with that bank that was, was highlighted as a little bit risky, given its uh, allocation to tech startups, they had to sell securities to raise more cash. Well, this is where, you know, you don't realize what's going to happen with the Fed raising rates, but this is what happened, which was as the Fed raised rates, a lot of banks, not just this bank, but a lot of banks have long dated treasuries. And what that means is they have treasuries that mature in 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years. And those are very secure, very safe uh, instruments. But as we've talked about in the show, as rates rise, the longer a dated maturity it is, so if you go out 10 years, 20, 30 years, the farther out you go, the larger the negative impact is on the price of that bond. So if you have a 30-year bond or a 20-year bond, that's a treasury, so very secure. It's not going anywhere, but the value of that bond can dra drop quite dramatically, right? So you think about that. In general, the Barclays bond index last year was down 18%, 18%. So, you know, if you're, that's on your bank balance sheet, a decline like that in something that you think is a secure asset. Well, now if you've got to sell them an 18% discount, right, because they're down by that much, you're, you've got a problem, right? And so what they, they what we're going to do was go out into the market and actually raise more capital to just, you know, strengthen up their balance sheet. But this is where you understand what, how our financial systems and any system for that matter, I don't, it's legal system. It's all, all of our systems are built on faith, right? The faith that, uh, the, the, those entities are well-funded and when it went out there that this bank was trying to raise more capital right away, the faith in that entity started to get shaken and people started to pull more money. Right. And that's kind of, you know, the term a run in a bank. Well, people, as people pulled money out of that bank, that really collapsed it, right? And so right away, uh, you know, the federal deposit insurance company stepped in. And uh, for anybody that has uh, any assets at the bank that were within the insurance limits, and that's under $250,000 per named entity, uh, that it's protected. But if you're over that amount, it may or may not be protected. Uh, now, in the great financial crisis, most of those assets were protected, so it wasn't a problem. And, and you know, you had situations, uh, we've talked about this, like Merrill Lynch, a big name, right, and everything, but, you know, they were off investing their own money, uh, and they ran into troubles in 08, 09. Well, Bank of America stepped in and took them over. So pretty much everybody's assets were okay. And same thing, let's say, with Wachovia. Uh, they were, Wells Fargo stepped in and took them over, so everybody's assets were okay. But, you know, that's the thing you have to remember, which is you really don't want to be over the FDIC insurance limit if you're with a bank. Because, you know, I think in general, banks' balance sheets are very secure. They're probably going to be fine. I don't see any major reason that this is a contagion issue like we saw in 0809. But, you know, you, you really want to be smart with this because the challenge that exists with banks right now 
are twofold. One is uh, they, they have about $17 trillion in cash in banks, so it's a huge number. But you know, we see this with our clients. You can keep that money in a bank and even in a CD, maybe get two or three percent. But if you just keep it in there as cash, you know, maybe now you're getting a percent and a half more than you were before, maybe in some banks, three or four. But we talk about this with our clients. We can get in with clients. We are moving money into six month treasuries that we're getting five point two percent. So let's just look at this. So you can get a six month treasury that you get for you get an annual rate of five point two percent that you don't pay. Uh, New York state taxes on that income. And really it's as safe as safe gets, right? I mean, you're talking about six month treasury by the US treasury. And for us, those are held at Schwab. And if you ask me, I'd rather put my faith and trust in Charles Schwab or Fidelity or Vanguard, one of these big financial custodians that are not you know, taking risky bets or doing anything like this, rather than, you know, frankly, almost any bank. Uh, so it's, it's really, to me, you get a higher yield, in a better tax situation uh, than you do at a bank. So people are pulling money out of banks at this point. And then the other thing is, you know, just like uh, the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, you know, there can be many other banks that have long dated treasuries that are going to run into problems, right? So if they have to sell them because depositors are pulling uh, cash out, they're going to have to sell them at a discounted value. So again, I, all I say with this is I don't see a major issues. Banks are well-funded. Uh, they're really in a, in a great spot in many conditions. But uh, you know, I would always uh, make sure that if you have money in a bank, that it is within uh, that limit of $250,000 per named entity. And all that means is if, you know, if your spouse has 250000 you can have 250000 So that's how it sets up. Well, folks, we're going to go to commercial break, but come back and join us as we take your questions and give you guidance. You're listening to Let's Talk Money, brought to you by Boucher Finance Group, where we help our clients prioritize their health while we manage their wealth for life. Welcome back, folks. For those of you who are just joining us, my name is Martin Shields. I'm the Chief Wealth Advisor at Boucher Financial Group, and I'm your host today for Let's Talk Money. It's great to be here with you on this snowy winter morning to take any questions you may have and give you some thoughts on what you can do in your tax planning situation, your financial planning situation, or with your investments. Uh, it's great to give my colleague, Steve Boucher, a, a break. And I'm fortunate to have another very talented colleague with me, Vincenzo Testa, who's a CFP and CPA. Vincenzo, what's, what's on the plans for this weekend after the show? Any, anything big? <clears throat> Nothing in particular. My cousin just got engaged, so we're going to go over and visit him and uh, congratulate him on that. Uh, maybe grab some dinner, but besides that, not much. Otherwise, uh, just studying tax law. Uh, like any CPA in March would be doing. <laughs> yeah, I tell you, you I gotta, I got to say, I'm an economist. You CPAs, you tax folks, uh, you're a different breed, and uh, you know that's why we love you so much because studying tax law. That's this is folks. This is what our CPAs do on their weekends, and uh, why we love them so much, and they add so much value to our clients. So, uh, well, enjoy that that rest of that. Sounds great to be able to celebrate. Uh, the uh, upcoming net nuptials and everything. Um, and it's great to have you here, Vinny, as always. And I would encourage any of our listeners, if you have any tax questions or any finance-related question, to give us a call. You can reach me at 800-825-5949. Again, that's 
800-825-5949. So one of the things I want to highlight uh, for all of our listeners is, again, with our expertise, we work with, you know, it's interesting because some firms have some niches of areas where they work with clients. And, you know, with our firm, because I think we're big enough, we manage uh, close to a billion dollars for our clients and we have 19 professionals. We really don't have a niche. We have a lot of areas of expertise. And, you know, I would say, you know, where do our clients come from? Well, we have a lot of clients that are small business owners. We have a lot of clients that are executives, a lot of clients that are doctors, a lot of clients that, you know, have family wealth or just different situations like a divorce or a, a insurance settlement. So there's a lot of areas where we have clients that come on and work with us. But one area that we, of those areas that we, we spend a lot of time with clients and it's very complex is with executives uh, who have stock options. And again, we're so fortunate to have colleagues like uh, Vinny and, and Nicole uh, Goble on. And uh, they did a webinar this Wednesday talking about stock options and what people need to be aware of, both from an investment perspective uh, and with uh, the tax elements of that. And, you know, if, if, you, if you're in that space, you know, you could have restricted stock, you could have stock options, you can employ stock purchase plan, you may have, you know, the uh, company stock in your 401k. So a lot of different ways that you have exposure to your company, and you got to make sure it's managed properly. Uh, because, you know, it can absolutely be the case. You know, I think G is a perfect example where in the 90s, uh, everybody thought that you didn't need to own anything else because GE was well diversified. You had Jack Welch at the helm. The company kept meeting earnings consistently. The stock price kept going up. Why would you ever sell out of that? And, you know, come to find out, uh, Jack was a good manager, but maybe not good as we thought. And, uh, you know, in the last 20 years, uh, the stock price has really taken a hit. So this is where we give a lot of guidance to uh, our clients in that space. And Vinny, why don't you just highlight, uh, you know, if you want to go look, uh, look at the webinar, it's uh, on our website and, uh, you know, really a great half an hour to spend if you're in this space. And that's at Boucher.com. And also there is all of our uh, blogs that give you some insight into different areas. But why don't you just give our listeners just a quick insight. Is it something that you think if they're in that space that, really would be valuable for them to understand. Yeah, I, you know, honestly, I think anyone that has equity compensation from their employer should be working with a professional um, you know, to either exit that or just, like I said, alleviate the risks you know, of owning that single stock. Because you have to think about it. You know, Marty was just talking about GE. I mean, if you're working at a company, you have you know, that company's stock in your 401k, and you have equity compensation like you know, incentive stock options or non-qualified stock options or RSUs or PSUs, and you have all of those assets and they're all tied to the company you work at, you're really exposed. Um, and, and when it comes to selling out of those options and that equity compensation, there's a lot of tax ramifications from it. And not only could you be planning better from a tax perspective, but you could create huge tax liability for yourself and in turn, you know, create interest and penalties and, you know, at filing time. So I think it's really important to, you know, start, sit down with a financial professional that, you know, is well-versed in this. And, you know, here at Boucher we are um, and work to get, you know, your tax situation uh, handled in this space and also, you know, alleviate some of your single stock risk. That's great. Great. So again, our listeners, go ahead and if you're in that space, go to our website, boucher.com, look at our blogs and, and you can watch that webinar. We're going to go to the phone lines. We have Jim from Albany. Jim, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? I can. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for taking my call. 
So yes, what can we help um, you with? Yeah, so I am in a situation, and I think I probably made a mistake, but I'll learn from it. Um, I work for a large corporation. Um, I do get some stock equity, some, like, they grant me stock shares. Um, and I had, for probably 10 or 15 years, I had just acquired it and acquired it and acquired it and uh, hadn't really uh, done anything with it. Um, but it was getting to be a little bit, larger percentage of my portfolio that I was comfortable with. So what happened was in, in like around February 15th time frame, I sold enough, I sold some shares and uh, it was in total, I think there was about a $4,000 loss on the shares that I sold. And then what happened was about a week later, I got another allotment of shares and this is all through Fidelity. Everything's done through Fidelity with my company. And so now it's showing that the sales that I uh, sold in earlier February are showing up as a wash sale because I guess I didn't account for the fact that when the company granted me more shares, it looks like I bought more. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't do a 30-day window. Mm-hmm. So uh, my guess is that next year, when I go to file for 2023 taxes, it's not going to let me take the uh, capital loss for that. Yeah. So our listeners, so a 30-day wash rule is simply if you sell a position and, and it's at a loss, you cannot buy that same position or even something very similar to it within 30 days or that gain, that loss gets washed away. Uh, Vinny, any thoughts uh, for this for this gentleman, for, for Jim? Yeah, that that's really interesting in a really specific situation. Um, you know, I wouldn't have known that they would have done that to you, you know, just off first glance. But, you know, with the wash sale, if you don't know, your cost basis gets reduced by the amount that was disallowed. Does that make sense? So if you were to subsequently sell those shares after the fact, you'd be able to account – I'm sorry, your cost basis gets uh, increased by the amount that was disallowed. So you'd be able to uh, kind of – sort of net that loss that you should have gotten against the future gain. So there's ways to uh, recapture that. But, yeah, that's unfortunate. Is that something that TurboTax normally would lead you through? Or I normally do my taxes through TurboTax. uh, You know, it's like like I said, in situations where you're dealing with equity compensation and you're getting RSUs and you're selling them, I would definitely work with a tax professional. And, and, you know, I I think, you know, in more cases than not, it probably – saves, you know, a headache and, you know, tax li- could save tax liability and interest and penalties for making mistakes. Yeah, I just wasn't, what I wasn't aware of is that when I was granted them, it looks like I purchased them, which I mm-hmm. really didn't purchase them. Yep. The company awarded me them, but it shows up as like a purchase of them. So uh, yeah. I guess in the future, I hadn't really liquidated any, so and it's just kind of stupid on my part that I could have just I, I, 30 days really wouldn't have made a difference to me. I should have just yeah. waited until, uh, you know, April or 30 days after I was granted them and then and then start liquidating some. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, Jim, you're not alone. I mean, those, those are some of the challenges that, uh, you know, individuals like yourself face as you try to make decisions on that. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah. It, it can be difficult. So. All right. Well, thanks for your comment. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Take care now. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, I think it, it seems as though, uh, many, in part because we have more and more clients that are, you know, around the country, uh, not just in the Albany Capital Region, but even here in the Albany Capital Region who, you know, with remote working, uh, you know, could be working for different public corporations, um, not just public corporations that are headquartered here. And the challenges that you face, right, there's, it's not easy. And, you know, especially when, the stock's doing well, the general inclination is just to say, I'm just going to keep accumulating that. And, you know, the general guidance we give to our clients is if sing your single stock of pretty much anything, but even more so when it's your employer, right? Because not only do you have that single stock risk with your employer, you have your uh, compensation risk, right? I mean, if something happens to that company, you know, not only will the stock price go down, but you could lose your job. Uh, so there is a lot of risk, financial risk that t is tied up with your employment. And, you know, I have a particular perspective on this because in my 20s, I worked in telecom in, in D.C. and that was in the 90s in Washington, D.C. And it was the boom days of tech and telecom. And so, you know, a lot of people, uh, especially people I was you know, a little bit more junior, but a lot of people who are more senior saw these stock prices go sky high and then plummet. And so what I, the guidance I always give the uh, clients is if you have the opportunity to have, you know, to work for a company where you're getting stock options, restricted stock or anything like this, don't be afraid to take advantage of that and capture some of that gain. You can't get greedy with it. And, you know, if you're selling some of it, it's not like you're getting out completely. Chances are you're going to get more and more of those options and restricted stock. So uh, it's about trying to manage that risk and frankly, take advantage of, uh, you know, really income. This is this is part of your income uh, that you're getting from that corporation. So you really need to have a plan in place, both from a tax perspective, but also uh, very importantly, from an investment perspective. We're going to go back to the phone lines. We have Andrew from Del Mar. Andrew, are you there? Uh, yes. I a, hi. Hi. Uh, earlier, you mentioned that six months treasuries go going for five point two percent. So yes. I was wondering, in your sixty forty typical sixty forty portfolio, uh, non qualified portfolio, what percent of assets is in that sixty forty? Of, of what percent on the bond side of that would yep. be in six months treasuries currently for you guys? So it depends, right? So, you know, in some cases, uh, you know, we may not have uh, treasuries. We may have more diversified bond funds uh, because the only thing you have to remember is uh, as much as there's a pretty good chance at six months, the rates are going to be higher. It may not be the case. So, you know, what one, it, it, depending on the size of the portfolio, we may be using more diversified bond funds uh, with larger portfolios where we use treasury uh treasuries, treasury bills, um, we're going to have a bond ladder. So what that means is we're going to probably look out, you know, anywhere from three to five years and be buying bonds along that ladder. Uh, because what we want to make sure is we're diversifying uh, what our overall uh, interest rate risk is over a period of time. Because what happens with a bond ladder is you basically, let's say, you know, your money would come in now. We're going to buy, you know, a six-month treasury, a one-year, a 18-month, a two-year. We're going to buy out over, you know, a period of time that structures that ladder so that when that next six-month bond comes due, we're going to buy out in the latter part of that ladder. Uh, because, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, if you're a client of ours, that not only do you get the yield 
that's really good on the short-term perspective, but that, you know, if let's say like, you know, Vinny was mentioning, as we got longer rates start to come down, that you, that we grab some of those good rates for a two year or a five year. So it would be that six month would just be one step on the bond ladder. Uh, and where we, what we, but let me make a contrast to that. If somebody has, let's say, half a million dollars in cash and they want to keep it in cash for different reasons, maybe they have a purchase, whatever, but they know they don't need it right now, but they may need it in six months that we'll buy it. Well, now in that situation, we'll, we'll use all that money uh, and put it in a six month treasury, right? So we're not going to ladder that. We're going to buy that straight out uh, for six months that's going to come due. And that way, uh, you know, it's completely liquid. They get the tax benefit on New York State, uh, and it really works well uh, for people in that circumstances that would otherwise just keep that cash in the bank. How big of the portfolios will you go to laddering rather than buying funds? Uh, it just depends. The, how much money in those? Yeah, you know, uh, anywhere, usually over $2 million, we start to, uh, 2 to $3 million start to ladder. So. Got it. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, these are great questions. And again, I would, you know, if you have cash in the bank right now, and it's a sizable amount, I mean, you really probably want to, and you've got a longer time horizon, you, you still want your, your emergency reserve fund. You know, that's money that you set aside that, uh, you know, you're, you are not, um, you're you know, going to be using that is there for emergencies. You want to keep that in cash, right? That's, that's fine. That, that's, I always say, you know, that's, you really, that is peace of mind that you need money. And that should be around three to six months, maybe nine months of of um, of cash for cash flow uh, purposes that you have it set there and that you can access uh, if you need it. But if you have more than that, and maybe you know you have cash set aside for you know a new home purchase or something where you're like it's not happening now, but six months, a year, you know, two years, somewhere down the road. Uh, you know, rather than keep that in a bank where even if you went down the CD route, let's say you were to buy a CD. Well, one, you're probably gonna have to lock into a term with that. Uh, two, uh, you know, you're probably not going to get 5.2% annualized rate. That's a, a very good rate for what exists right now. And, you know, three, you're not going to get the benefit of not paying New York state taxes uh, on that income. And the fourth one is, you know, frankly, as I said earlier in the show, I would say there's more risk with pretty much any bank uh, than there is with a U.S. Treasury that's six months at a big financial custodian like Fidelity or Schwab. Uh, you know, we talk about this with um, our clients or prospective clients. The value of consolidating under one financial custodian just makes your life a lot easier. And there's sometimes concern that says, well, I want to diversify my financial custodian. And, you know, the fact of the matter is like there, there really is not a lot of value to diversifying a financial custodian to the extent that you're talking about one of these big financial custodians, right? Uh, you, you know, because there really are no small financial custodians these days. You know, I think, you know, you look at like, let's say a situation like Merrill, uh, Merrill Lynch, that, you know, not only did, you know, client individuals have their assets held there as investments with, if you work with a Merrill broker, but Merrill was trading their own dollars as well in making some risky bets. And that's how they got themselves in trouble. So if you're in that situation where not only is your money held there, but they're doing trading on, you know, on their own balance sheet. Well, you know, if you remember, even Goldman Sachs got themselves in trouble that Warren Buffett had to lend the money. 
uh, in 08, 09. Now, granted, those were extreme circumstances, but you know, when you want to protect yourself, you want to think about extreme circumstances where I'll tell you that Schwab and Fidelity, they had no issues, or Vanguard as well, they had no issues. And really, they make fractions of pennies, fra fractions of fractions of pennies, uh, you know, working with uh, on their clients' dollars. And they're not trading and making risky bets. So, you know, I think to me, if you've got cash and you're looking for a great way to get some additional yield on it, it is really a lot better approach and even almost safer to go ahead and put it in a six month treasury uh, than it is to uh, buy a CD with that. But, um, you know, it's just uh, something to, to consider. Um, we, wanna be, we have a few minutes left in the show. Just talk about a few other items that we want you to be aware of. If you have any questions before we wrap up, you can give uh, us a call at 800-825-5949. That's 800 eight two five five nine four nine so we talked about stock options one of the things we want to highlight just because we see a lot of uh individuals that either clients of ours or prospective clients uh coming to us with and that is with uh, an employee stock uh purchase plan or an esop and you know that this is where it's a private company uh it could be Golob corporation it could be stewards where you're getting shares in that company now you can't go out and trade them on the public markets uh, but it is a great form of compensation and certainly with stewards uh you know it's a great company to begin with uh it's so well run it's so involved with the community and their uh, esop program is amazing the company's stock has done very well but they've changed it and you know you used to be able to hold uh the uh, steward stock indefinitely you retire you keep it and you get the great growth from it and frankly like why wouldn't you hold it uh you, you know you know stewards is going to do well in good times and in bad times so it made sense to hold it but they've changed their policy around and now within five years you've got to start to diversify out of it which from you know as you know you think about stewards perspective it makes sense right you know their goal is to incentivize and keep great people it's not really to you know have a situation where all their stock is being held by retirees and you know if you're a stewards employee out there you know that there are literally people who are you know made very uh you know reasonable amounts of money or very modest amounts of money and they're millionaires because the stock has done so well um, but, you know, I would really encourage you if you're in that boat and you've got to diversify uh, is to talk to a fiduciary about handling that. Right. Because it's a real change for you. Uh, you know, we see this where a lot of these uh, folks, they have almost all their money tied up in uh, steward stock. And now you've got to move away from that. And you really want to make sure you have a plan in place. We're working with a lot of, uh, you know, former uh, and current steward stewards employees on this. And, uh, you know, Vinny, I don't know if there's anything you want to share, but I just think it's so important when you're going from an environment that you work for a great company, the stock's done so well that you really want to diversify uh, out of that uh, in a way that makes sense and that you, you know, don't have somebody selling you something that you've got uh, a fiduciary that you're working with with guidance. No, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my point is that if you have the opportunity to buy into the ESOPs and make sure you take full advantage of it, it's really a great uh, perk. Uh, you know, if you're working at Stewards or Market 32 or, you know, formerly known as Price Chopper, uh, and you have the opportunity to buy into those plans, you know, take full advantage of that because it's a really great perk. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I just want to share with you as well, and this is a conversation we get, I mean, we get asked this by uh, prospective clients or even existing clients about this all the time. You know, our firm works with 
really families on family wealth, right? And this is what I always say, which is, you know, these days where, you know, many people don't have pensions, you prepare for your retirement by managing your cost, paying down your debt, uh, you know, taking advantage of Social Security at the right and most opportune time, but building assets in retirement accounts that provide your cash flow. And, you know, if it's done properly, you know, you're really talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars over time, that at some point, is going to go on to the next generation. So our firm works a lot with families on thinking from a multi-generational perspective, right? Making sure that next generation is prepared to receive those assets. They're doing the right things in their own personal situation. And that's a lot of the conversations, you know, we start having with that next generation. And many of our clients, our client relationships are long-term. So they could be, you know, 10, 20, 30 year relationships that we have with these clients. We started working with the grandparents, then we started working with the parents, and now we're working with the grandkids. And, you know, I just would stress to you that as you're working hard in saving those dollars, that, you know, as you're having kids, you start, whether it be, you know, preparing for them for college or whatever, uh, that you start really thinking about uh, guidance along the lines of multi-generational guidance. And in particular, you know, that's the way our firm is set up that, you know, we have, you know, people from, you know, Steve, who started the firm 34 years ago, uh, down to, you know, recent college grads. And, you know, the goal of our firm, Boucher Financial Group, is to be around for multi-generations. And, uh, you know, we just had a prospective client come and ask us that because, you know, they're thinking about not only themselves, but, you know, guidance for uh, their son as well. And, you know, that becomes so important, right? It's, all right, we're, it's not just, you know, what about the next five years or 10, but, you know, it's really next 20 or 30 years and making sure that there's a firm, and in our case with, with Boucher, that's set up to, uh, you know, be around that long and be able to work with families uh, from that perspective. And, you know, again, I just would give everybody who's listening you know, that, that mindset that as you're working hard and you're saving that money, uh, that you need to make sure that you're doing the right things with your kids and your grandkids so that if they're going to get this money, they're in a good spot. Well, folks, uh, we've spent an hour with you. Hopefully, you learned a lot. It's, as always, it's great to be here with you. It was great to have my colleague, Vincenzo, on. He's a smart young guy, and it's great to have him here at the firm. Tomorrow, I'll be doing the show at 8 o'clock, and I'll have another colleague, Paolo LaPietro, joining me, another great, smart, young guy. Uh, but come and join us as we continue to take your questions. You're listening to Let's Talk Money, brought to you by Boucher Financial Group.